Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Amna Nawaz, in for Jen White. Let's jump into the news roundup. Explosions ripped through southern Kyiv this morning as Russian troops entered Ukraine's capital city. A Kremlin spokesperson says they're ready to talk to Ukraine's leadership, but the terms include, quote, a complete demilitarization of the country, and Russia will likely demand a full surrender. In an address on Thursday, President Biden vowed to impose even harsher sanctions on Russia, but said U.S. troops wouldn't be going to Ukraine. Putin is the aggressor. Putin chose this war, and now he and his country will bear the consequences. Today, I'm authorizing additional strong sanctions and new limitations on what can be exported to Russia. President Biden is set to attend an emergency summit with NATO members later today. What will happen and how much can they do when Ukraine isn't a NATO nation? We will get to that. Plus, President Biden has just announced on Twitter that he plans to nominate Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to serve on the Supreme Court. We'll get to more on that and talk about how Judge Jackson could change the court. Lots to unpack today, so let's jump into it. Anita Kumar is with us. She is senior editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico. Anita, welcome. Great to be back. Mary Harris is the host and managing editor of Slate's daily news podcast, What Next? Mary, always a pleasure. So nice to be here, Amna. And Kimberly Martin is a political science professor at Barnard College and a faculty member at Columbia University's Harriman Institute for Russian and East Central European Studies. Kimberly, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Amna. So, Mary, let's begin with you. Uh, Russian troops are already in Kyiv, and Ukraine's president says he is, quote, target number one. Let's talk about what happens now. How quickly could Russia just take over Ukraine? I mean, that's a hard question to answer, but it could be very quickly. Notably, Zelensky addressed the Russian government today in a video and said he wanted to stop the loss of life from happening. He wanted diplomacy, but it's unclear to me what a negotiation could look like at this point with Russia in Kyiv. Like, what kind of negotiation is that when someone has a gun to your head? And I'm I'm really cl- curious what Kimberly thinks of all this, frankly. Well, Kimberly, over to you then. What what do you think of this? And and talk to me about how prepared Biden and other Western powers are for whatever happens next. Could it, there be a possible installation of a pro-Putin puppet regime? I think that's entirely possible. What a lot of people have been predicting all along is that Russia's goal will be to overthrow the government in Kyiv and install some kind of a pro-Russian regime. Um, As you mentioned, we see that the Russian troops are on the outskirts of Kyiv right now. Uh, Zelensky and the uh, Ukrainian defense ministry have uh, sent uh, machine guns out to the population and have also posted instructions on how to make Molotov cocktails. Um, I think at this point, there's very little that the United States can do to stop anything happening in Ukraine. Um, And what we have to instead be doing is beefing up our uh, NATO allies to ensure that it stays limited to Ukraine. So Anita, we know President Biden is going to be meeting with other NATO leaders today. What do we expect from that meeting? 
Yeah, I mean, they're continuing to sort of talk about what they can do. You, you saw the Ukrainian president um, in, the, in the speech we just talked about saying that other countries had, had not been there, that the United States and European countries could be and should be doing more. And he's calling on them to do more. Obviously, uh, you know, what countries have done so far is really pushed on harsh sanctions, on limiting what could be exported to Russia, things like that, these economic uh, issues that they really say will impact the country in the coming days and and weeks and months ahead. But the question sort of is, you know, is there something that they should be doing now, something else that they should be doing now? Well, Kimberly, what about that? Because there have been a number of of critics, critics basically saying the Biden administration could be and should be doing more. They've been rolling out sort of tranche by tranche sanctions. How do you look at how the Biden administration has responded to Russia? I think there are a couple things to keep in mind. The first thing that we have to remember is that Russia has nuclear weapons. And so there is no way that the United States wants to get directly involved in a military conflict with Russia. Um, But the second thing to keep in mind is that uh, imposing sanctions is not a deterrent. It is the threat of imposing sanctions that is a deterrent. And so what we see in this case is that the deterrent failed. For whatever reason, Putin decided he doesn't care what happens to the Russian economy or maybe he believed the sanctions wouldn't actually be unified across uh, the European and American space. Uh, uh, He doesn't doesn't believe that it's going to harm him sufficiently, that he's willing to stop. Um, And so at this point, sanctions are not a deterrent, they are a punishment. So Mary, what about the possibility of additional sanctions? We know that the president and other NATO allies stopped short of the so-called nuclear options, right? Kicking uh, Russia out of what's known as the SWIFT banking system, that secure messaging system that connects thousands of financial institutions over hundreds of countries. Why, Why would Biden and the European allies avoid booting Russia from SWIFT right now? Well, because it has, you know, there are trade-offs here. I mean, Europe relies on Russia for energy exports. And I think there's a reluctance in some EU countries to boot them out of this financial system in a way that's going to make doing business with Russia more costly and more complicated for EU countries. It also runs the risk of pushing Russia closer to China. And we're already seeing China sort of make itself part of what's happening right now in Ukraine. There were reports that there was a call between Putin and Xi today, and you know Xi was encouraging negotiations, and then we see Putin coming out and saying, yes, I will negotiate. So that's a very real thing going on here too. So there are just trade-offs to these decisions, but it is the logical next step in terms of sanctions. Well, while President Biden has vowed U.S. troops will not engage in the Russia-Ukraine crisis, that hasn't stopped him from moving troops into bordering NATO countries. Our forces are not and will not be engaged in the conflict with Russia in Ukraine. Our forces are not going to Europe to fight in Ukraine, but to defend our NATO allies and reassure those allies in the East. As I made crystal clear, The United States will defend every inch of NATO territory with the full force of American power. Stephanie, one of our listeners, is asking, maybe this is a simplistic view of the situation, but why don't the U.S. and its European allies do more to stop the Russian invasion in its tracks? She says, I understand Ukraine is not a NATO member, but isn't the fact that it's a sovereign nation facing an unprovoked attack enough for these countries to lend their firepower to stop this? So, Anita, what do we know about this? Obviously, we know Biden has moved some forces and equipment that were already in Europe nearby, but what else could happen? 
Yeah, I mean, I think we sort of touched on why why not more, which is that Russia is a nuclear power here. But there are a couple things that that could be happening that may be may be up next, which is, uh, you know, the the president hasn't formally asked Congress for additional funding, but Congress is getting ready, uh, you know, to do that or look at look at what they could do. And so this is Republicans and Democrats looking to send funding to Ukraine. The other issue, of course, is you know whether to send weapons, and there's less consensus on that. The the Senate has failed to sort of have a. a you know, come to a consensus on this. And so we're just not really sure what what that looks like. Remember that the Biden administration already sent $200 million worth of missiles, ammunition, and other military equipment to Ukraine before this week. And so, you know, there are some there are some lawmakers talking about that on Capitol Hill. It's just unclear if they have the consensus to do that. Kimberly, what about Putin? We know that uh, he's already moved troops into Belarus and used that as a staging ground to move troops into Ukraine. Is there any indication he'll move into any other former Soviet states? It's always possible that he would do that. Uh, the two that are are uh, worth watching are both Georgia, where he already staged an invasion in 2008, um, and then Moldova, which is on the border with Ukraine, has a uh, breakaway area called Transniester uh, that has Russian forces permanently stationed there and is not a NATO member. Um, but I think that Putin would be reluctant to take on NATO, although one of the questions that uh, we should raise is whether Putin is getting good information and whether he remains rational, uh, because he has gone much further than many people believe is actually in Russia's interests. Mary, what about the possibility of other NATO states also ramping up, coming to Ukraine's aid, and then Russia engaging with them? Well, I just think that nuclear issue is going to be an issue for all of these countries. And for a long time, there's been an understanding that Ukraine will not be able to join NATO for all sorts of reasons. And so it just puts NATO in a very complicated position right now where, you know, obviously <laughs> NATO is established to counter Russian aggression. Russian aggression is happening right now. But, you know, Ukraine is not in the club, so to speak. So I just think, you know, we're going to see an interesting back and forth of how far will countries go? Who will they fund? How will they, you know, make it clear that they support the push for democracy in Ukraine? We'll get into more of the week's biggest headlines after the break. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful, and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. 
So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. It's the News Roundup. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. Let's get back into the conversation. Well, former President Donald Trump sounded off on the Russia-Ukraine conflict in a radio interview on Tuesday. So Putin is now saying it's independent, a large section of Ukraine. I said, how smart is that? And he's going to go in and be a peacekeeper. That's the strongest peace force. We could use that on our southern border. That's the strongest peace force I've ever seen. There were more army tanks than I've ever seen. They're going to keep peace all right. So, Anita, let's talk about that. What What is behind the former president's praise of Putin? Well, we've seen a couple things. We've seen him and, and some of his supporters basically trying to bolster President Trump's legacy here on, on Russia, saying, look, uh, we see what Putin, President Putin is doing now. We saw what Russia did in 2014 when they annexed Crimea when President Obama was president. So they're saying, look, uh, Democrats have trouble with this. Republicans sort of can keep him aligned. But, but of course, you're also hearing President Trump praise Putin. It's something we, we heard over and over during his four years in office where he uh, repeatedly said he believed President Putin over his own intelligence officials. Uh, you know, he he is basically saying in this radio interview that he's believing what President Putin is saying about why Russia was going into Ukraine, that, you know, they weren't trying to take over everything, that they were just trying to protect themselves. Uh, the, you know, the U.S. is accusing President Putin right now of misinformation, saying, look, they're not, you know, President Putin has said, uh, there's that they're just protecting themselves, that they believe that they are certain places that they have to go to um, to prevent genocide and human rights violations in Ukraine. So what we're seeing from President Trump is something we've seen from him, which is believing uh, what President Putin and Russia says about what they're doing. Well, Kimberly, let's talk a little bit about Putin and, and what he said. It brings me to a question from one of our viewers. Hillary tweets, can you please discuss Russia's objectives and endgame? Is it just that they can't tolerate democracy? Uh, as Anita mentioned there, we've seen what Putin has had to say in terms of a justification, but what is the endgame here? It's really hard to know. The thing we have to keep in mind is that there was no external event that provoked this decision by Putin to invade. The other thing we know is that Putin has been very isolated, uh, made worse by COVID from even his own advisors domestically. So this is his decision and whatever he's thinking is going on inside his head. I do not believe him when he says that there is you know, no daylight between the Russian and Ukrainian people and that he is trying to overthrow an Nazi regime, since that regime is led by the Jewish uh, President Zelensky. Um, I do not believe him when he says that he's afraid of NATO enlargement, because nobody had been talking about Ukraine joining NATO since 2008 under the George W. Bush administration. What I do believe is that Putin has been waiting for an opportunity to get back at the West for what he sees as the humiliation of Russia in the 1990s, when the United States became the sole superpower after the collapse of the Soviet Union. He thought this was an opportunity and he took it, maybe because of what happened with the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, maybe because of the level of conflict with inside U.S. domestic politics, maybe because Angela Merkel was out of power in Germany and he thought that the uh, uh, Europe would not remain united in response. Well, we've seen a harder stance towards Putin from several U.S. lawmakers, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Here's what she had to say about Putin's aggression towards Ukraine. It's stunning to see 
in this day and age, a tyrant roll into a country. This is the same tyrant who attacked our democracy in 2016. This is the same tyrant who is opposed to democracy and wants to minimize, trivialize it, to, to um, downgrade it in the eyes of the Russian people. Well, earlier this week, Congress did explore their next steps in dealing with the Russia-Ukraine conflict. The House Intelligence Committee announced they're working on bipartisan legislation to send aid to pro-Ukrainian independence fighters. Kimberly, who are those pro-Ukraine independence forces? It's a mixture of people. Um, so some of them are just ordinary citizens who have come together to defend their neighborhoods. Um, some of them are groups that were put together um, at the initial time of the uh, Russian invasion uh, of Crimea and the beginning of the war in eastern Ukraine. Um, some of those have been formed by oligarchs uh, who are pro-Ukrainian oligarchs in Ukraine. Um, some of them are a bit more disturbing because there are uh, a few groups left that uh, truly are uh, very right-wing and white supremacist. Well, Mary, back on Capitol Hill, we know a bipartisan group of senators has been working on an emergency spending bill, right, to help NATO and, and Ukraine combat that Russian aggression. What else do we know about that bill? Well, I, I can't speak to the bill because it's very much still in process. But I will say that something to keep an eye on when you're looking at Capitol Hill is the interesting realignments we're seeing in the political figures on Capitol Hill. You kind of alluded to it a little bit when you talked about Donald Trump and his back and forth and having it a little bit out of both sides of his mouth when he talked about what's happening in Ukraine, saying in a statement on Thursday, this never would have happened if I was in charge, and then also praising Putin. And you can see CPAC is going on right now. And you can see this interesting thing happening where it used to be the Democrats and Republicans were very united in how they thought about Russia, and that seems to be changing. You had someone like Ron DeSantis, who's thought of as the future of the Republican Party, speaking at CPAC, not talking about Ukraine once, instead talking about authoritarianism in Australia because of COVID mandates. And I'm really interested to see how this fissure that's opening up on Capitol Hill plays out when it comes to what will these legislators be able to do in terms of how they're funding the effort in Ukraine and how they're thinking about it? Like, will this impact actually what comes out the other end in terms of legislation? And we'll just have to see, but we can see this fissure happening in real time. Yeah, Anita, talk more about this. When you look broadly at the parties, uh, both parties in Congress, are, are they on the same page about how the U.S. should respond to Russia's invasion? Well, I think there's there's some agreement, of course, you know, you but what you saw this week when President Biden, he announced a first group of sanctions. And then, of course, after the invasion, he announced harsher sanctions. You saw a real split here with Republicans saying, oh, he didn't go far enough, that it was way too weak in the beginning of the week and that he needed to do more. And that's what we're consistently seeing from Republicans. They're not saying boots on the ground. They are uh, generally not saying that. But what they are saying is that, uh, you know, President Biden hasn't been tough enough in this last year on President Putin. Remember the two of them, the met last year in uh, in person in Geneva and and. 
that he should have done more and that if he had done more, this would have ha- wouldn't have happened. Democrats are generally saying that they're supportive of what, what President Biden is doing and, and they they would like to continue to do more financially. So you're seeing everybody sort of working towards helping Ukraine. But the question is really political at this point. Who's to blame? Um, you know, it's a midterm year. It's an election year. Uh, the State of the Union is next week. And so we're going to see a lot of that partisan politics play play on this issue. Tom writes in saying, please explain why Ukraine isn't in NATO. All we keep hearing is that they're not in the club. So uh, there are a couple of reasons behind that. Uh, In order to join NATO, you have to meet certain membership criteria. You have to have resolved all conflicts on your territory. Um, You have to have uh, civilian control over the military and the intelligence forces. Um, You have to be economically stable enough uh, that you can support NATO uh, in what it does. Um, And you have to have a military that is strong enough to contribute to NATO's defenses. Uh, One of the major problems with Ukraine is the level of corruption um, and also the the real questions about stability in the country, political stability. Um, Even though we have seen what looks like a much more stable liberal democracy emerging in recent years, um, Ukraine has not had an easy time in the years uh, after it left uh, the Soviet Union. Um, And so NATO does not want to take on a new member that would actually create dangers for NATO and draw it into conflicts where NATO doesn't have any pre-existing interest. And I think part of what going on is there's just a sense that, you know, uh, Ukraine is, is Russia has made it very clear that Ukraine is such a central interest of its um, that NATO doesn't want to be drawn into a direct conflict with nuclear armed Russia. Well, Kimberly, before we let you go, there's obviously a lot changing by the hour, but what are you going to be watching in the days ahead? I'm going to be watching what kinds of military actions the Russians are actually taking, how far they go, whether it is sufficient to um, continue to put pressure on Ukraine or whether they actually are trying to overthrow the government. Um, And then also whether they choose to go into uh, Western Ukraine, uh, which is going to be uh, have probably an even greater level of resistance against the Russian invasion. So I think watching the level of of Ukrainian resistance is also going to be important. Um, And then watching what happens with Biden being able to keep uh, Europe united and NATO united in response. A lot to keep track of. That is Kimberly Martin. She's a political science professor with Columbia University's Barnard College. She's in the Harriman Institute for Russian and East Central European Studies. Kimberly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Amna. We are moving on from Ukraine, but we're hearing a lot from you. So we are going to spend our show on Monday talking about the invasion and whatever happens over the weekend. So keep sending us your comments and keep listening in the days and weeks ahead. Well, on Tuesday, the family of murdered black jogger Ahmad Arbery received a vindicating message from Attorney General Merrick Garland. This morning... Three defendants were convicted of committing federal hate crimes in connection with the murder, the murder of Ahmad Arbery. On February 23, 2020, Mr. Arbery was targeted, chased, shot, and killed while running on a public street. Today, a jury of the defendants' peers unanimously found beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendants acted because Mr. Arbery was black. Arbery's murderers now face life in prison for the federal crimes on top of the life sentences they've already received in state court. 
The verdict came two days before another set of high-profile convictions. On Thursday, three former Minneapolis police officers were found guilty of federal crimes for failing to intervene in the murder of George Floyd. Experts say it's an extraordinarily rare verdict, with some big implications for police inaction in the face of excessive force. Derek Chauvin killed Floyd after kneeling on his neck for more than nine minutes and was convicted last year. Now, his three colleagues have been found guilty of violating Floyd's constitutional rights by not providing him with medical care. Two of the three were also found guilty of not stopping Chauvin from kneeling on Floyd's neck. Their sentencing hearing hasn't been scheduled yet. Let's turn now to the Supreme Court. President Biden has nominated Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the court today. She will be replacing retiring Justice Stephen Breyer. Biden tweeted the pick this morning, saying, quote, I'm proud to announce that I'm nominating Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to serve on the Supreme Court. Currently serving on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, she is one of our nation's brightest legal minds and will be an exceptional justice. Anita, let's talk about Judge Jackson. What do we know about her? Well, she's 51 years old. She is a former public defender. Um, She did serve as a trial court judge in Washington for eight years before um, President Biden nominated her to, as you mentioned, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Uh, there, There are a lot of people that call that court sort of the second highest court in the land. It's not officially, but that's sort of the unofficial uh, title of that. And so there were a lot of people sort of looking at her. I will say this is this is really actually not a surprise. She has been the front runner or one of the front runners for this uh, pick since the beginning. Um, she was, and one of the reasons, of course, is she was confirmed last year to the court we just talked about after a relatively, you know, uncontentious Senate hearing. And she got the backing of three Republican lawmakers. Uh, President Biden has been you know, has not shied away from talking about how he hopes that he can secure some Republican support for her. And and what happens now, Anita? What happens after she's nominated? What's the process? Well, the process is that the Senate has to confirm her. And so they begin their process, their investigation uh, into her. We see that they'll set some hearings um, to uh, talk to her and talk to others. And we'll see what comes out of that investigation. And of course, the full Senate votes. We don't know exactly what that timing is going to look like. Uh, generally, uh, the Senate tries to work as quickly as they can. But, you know, it's it's generally, you know, probably months, uh, you know, famously during President Trump. End of his term, they really hurried to push through the last uh, nomination that he had. So it can be done uh, pretty quickly, but we'll see. This will sort of take over uh, things in the Senate now for the next for the next uh, few weeks and months. And of course, we're watching the court for some other big cases they are considering. On Tuesday, the court agreed to hear an appeal from a Colorado web designer who refused to provide services to same-sex couples. The last time the issue was taken up by the court was in 2018, in a similar case between a Colorado baker and a gay couple. So Mary, what's the significance of the court agreeing to hear this case? Well, okay, to understand this, we kind of have to go back in time a little bit to Masterpiece Cake Shop. That is the case you just talked about, where a gay couple took a baker to court because he he wouldn't bake a cake for their gay marriage. And what you probably don't remember with that case is what the decision was, because it was this compromise that was orchestrated by then-Justice Kennedy. Basically, instead of taking on this big issue of whether making this cake violated the baker's free speech, they just sort of punted on that 
And they said, okay, well, this seems to be something that is targeted against specific religions, which we do not allow. So this is another shot at that same kind of case. It's looking specifically at this web designer because all she does is free speech. Like all she does is speech and art in service of other people. And so this really directly takes on the idea that free speech is somehow in conflict with anti-discrimination rules. And it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, especially because this web designer, she has not actually been asked to make web designs for people who are gay. This is just theoretical at this point. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. We are rounding up some of the week's biggest news. We'll be back with more in just a moment. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Jo knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the News Roundup. Let's get back to the conversation. Before we keep going, a quick detour to America's highways, where so far, a U.S. version of Canada's so-called Freedom Convoy has failed to materialize. At any one time, no more than 15 trucks have joined the group headed to D.C., but its organizer is promising that next week, thousands of trucks will show up to block traffic on the Beltway. For anyone who drives around the notoriously gridlocked district, that kind of just sounds like your average Tuesday. But even with the convoy's small start, officials are wary of being caught off guard. The Pentagon has announced it will deploy 700 National Guardsmen to protect the Capitol next week. Before we move on now, let's make a stop in Texas. On Tuesday, Texas Governor Greg Abbott ordered the state's child welfare agency to treat gender-affirming procedures as, quote, child abuse. District attorneys representing five of the state's largest counties have already said they won't go along with it. So, Mary, let's just start with this directive. What exactly does it say? Well, here's the interesting thing about this directive, which is when I talked to people who have reported on what's happening in Texas, the truth is that parents in Texas who have trans kids already already feel harassed by Child Protective Services. They actually, a bunch of them, they have these go folders that they keep in their houses with notes from doctors and other people that basically say, yes, your child is trans, your child does have dysphoria, and that's because they feel like anyone can call them at any time and report them as being abusive because they are raising their child as trans or in a gender-affirming way. Now, what's different about what Abbott has put forward, Governor Abbott here, is that it specifically mentions puberty blockers as an intervention 
that is worth calling CPS over. Now, puberty blockers are something you would give to a trans child who's experiencing gender dysphoria after they've already begun puberty and their dysphoria has ramped up to basically put them in a, a state of stasis and let them figure out what their next move is. And it's not permanent, and it's something that many parents and kids feel is essential to helping them figure out what they're going through. And so it is one more thing in this state. The other thing I really feel like I have to mention here is that Governor Abbott is up for re-election. And so this is happening at a very important time for him. Early voting is starting in Texas. He wants to look like he is doing all the things that will get his voters out. And that's exactly what he's done with this rule. Anita, let's talk more about the politics on this. As Mary mentioned, he's up for re-election. And we've also seen a number of similar moves and efforts in state legislatures across the country targeting transgender children in particular. How, how much of this is a political move that ties in with that, that bigger movement we've seen from conservative legislatures across the country? Well, in Texas, this has been sort of a back and forth thing for months. This comes after the state legislature last year failed to pass a bill that would have made providing some of this care to minors a felony alongside, you know, sex trafficking and and physical and sexual abuse. So it's it's not a new issue. And I and as you look around the country, as you just mentioned, you're starting to see this issue come up in various places. It is going to be an issue in these elections this year and in the midterms. You've started to see a lot of um, you know sort of prominent Republicans, including uh, Senator Rick Scott of Florida, who's who's helping uh, his party uh, with Senate elections this year, talk about some of these issues. They are Republicans. Some Republicans are saying this is a key issue, that they want to make it an issue this year. And so I think that you're going to see this a lot more, both uh, by uh, officials in Washington, but also in individual states. That's really where these uh, some of these pushes are being made in state legislatures. Of course, this is not a bill. This came after, in Texas, after an opinion by the state attorney general. And so there's a lot of confusion as to what this really does, because it's actually not a law. Well, let's turn now to some sports news. Earlier this week, players from the United States women's national soccer team settled a class action lawsuit for $24 million. The U.S. Soccer Federation also agreed to pay women and men players an equal rate going forward. It is a historical moment. And, you know, just like all the players prior to me, the pioneers who helped make things better for when I came into the game, we're doing the same and uh, just really proud of the group. I mean, we've, we've started this journey six, seven years ago and, and it's been long and uh, uh, now it's just an opportunity for all the current players to play, uh, put this behind them, know that, you know, we still have a lot of work to do and uh, just really proud of the group. That was now retired soccer player and two-time Olympic gold medalist Carly Lloyd speaking to ESPN. So, Mary, you heard Carly there talking about the years they've spent in this fight. How significant is this win? It's pretty significant. And it's, it's significant, first of all, because a judge ruled against them in 2020 and basically said that, you know, if you want to keep fighting this, you have to appeal. So that was a bad fact for the players in this case. Um, 
One thing that's notable about this agreement, though, is that it's not entirely signed, sealed, and delivered because U.S. soccer is currently in the middle of collective bargaining with both the men and the women players. And this settlement goes into effect after the collective bargaining agreement is signed. So it raises all of these questions about how that will move forward and whether the men will come to the table and will be able to negotiate alongside the women in a way that's equitable for all of them. And that's what I'm going to be watching in the next few weeks and months. The contract expires at the end of March. Well, Anita, we know the gender pay gap in sports is not limited to soccer, sadly. What, what could this mean for gender pay gap in other sports? Well, I think you've already seen it. In this this case actually has been going on for over 5 years, and you've seen in those, you know, those last few years that players, teams, even athletes in other sports coming to uh, the American women's soccer players and saying, you know, what did you do? How do you do this? You know, they hadn't won. Um, and in fact, in the last couple of years, it looked like they wouldn't win because of a, a court ruling a couple of years ago on this issue. This was a little bit of a surprise. But I think that there are a lot of athletes sort of looking towards the women and saying, we have some lessons to learn from this about how we can stand up for ourselves and push to get that equity. So I think you're going to, you've already seen it and we're going to see it even more. Well, before we get to some big COVID news this week, let's talk about another health story from earlier this week. According to a new report from the CDC, U.S. maternal mortality rates are on the rise. Compared to 2019, the number of women who died either while pregnant or near the end of their pregnancy rose by 14 percent in 2020. The report also found that racial disparities are widening. Black women died at nearly three times the rate of white women. Mary, let's talk about what we know here. What What's contributing to this rise in maternal deaths? Well, I kind of want to go back. Like, the United States already had the highest rate of maternal deaths in the industrialized world. So this is on top of that. And I have to say that, you know, obstetricians, gynecologists, they weren't surprised by this number. You know, they've been talking about how it, COVID happened, but at the same time, they they were having to figure out how to deliver obstetric care in 2020. They were having to figure out like, how do you see your patients when there's a pandemic happening? And so in some ways it makes sense that these rates went up. It's just really sad that as with the rest of the pandemic, you know, we're really seeing all of the inequality in the United States highlighted by the stress of what we've been through. And that's what we're seeing here. Anita, that inequality, as Mary mentioned, it's been longstanding, right? The U.S. maternal death rate, just to put a finer point on it, is nearly 24 deaths for every 100,000 live births. You compare that to France and Canada, the rate there is, per 100,000 births is just nine deaths. Why, why are U.S. maternal deaths so much higher than every other developed nation's? Yeah, you have a lot of people saying exactly what you said earlier, that there's a lot of racial disparity here. And just looking around at our country and how not just on this particular issue, but on other health issues, on economic issues, on educational, that there continues to be this huge divide with uh, black Americans and how they have not 
uh, gotten the same opportunities. And so you're going to see people looking towards this as just one other factor uh, in that whole in that whole uh, issue of n- not having that equity and what they can do about it. So it hasn't gotten a lot of attention. But for those that are following this, this is just one more uh, factor for them to say, look, we need to get these things under control. And worth pointing out to the rate of pregnancy-related mortality in the U.S. has been rising steadily over the past three decades. Let's check in now on this week's COVID news with the time we have left. In early January, America hit a pandemic high of more than 800,000 new coronavirus cases a day. This week, that number was less than 80,000. As cases drop, the New York Times is reporting the CDC plans to loosen its masking guidance as early as today. So, Mary, what do we expect to happen? What's going to change? Well, the Centers for Disease Control is saying that they're going to change the way they measure things in a way to give different mask guidance. They're going to look at hospital capacity and coronavirus admissions rather than simply looking at case counts so that then their their advice can change based on where you are. And the early read is that that will mean much of the country will not have the same mask guidance from the CDC that they do now. Now, it's interesting timing, right? Because a year ago, when the CDC you know, first did this mask lifting, it was a big deal. And it was really seen as you know, giving permission to big stores and groceries to kind of like change how they were doing things. It's a really different time now. You know, they're, they're making this move at a time when a lot of the states are already making their own moves about mask guidance. So I think it's gonna be kind of different this time around in terms of how big of a splash it is, but it is notable that it's happening. Anita, as Mary mentioned, a lot of governors have already moved to loosen their masking rules, including a lot of Democrats. How much of this is the CDC responding to things that have already been happening, already unfolding on the ground? Yeah, the the Biden administration had been facing a lot of pressure to re to look at this again. And of course, the CDC had resisted saying, you know, we have to follow the science. This is this is what President Biden has said from the beginning that he would his administration would follow the science. He accused, you know, President Trump's administration of not doing that with COVID. And so that was very important to them. But you you guys are exactly right. I mean, we have seen in the beginning, of course, we saw Republicans saying Look, we're going to lift mandates. We're not going to. We're not going to go along with what the CDC says. CDC says, of course, this is guidance from the federal government, and now we've seen a lot of Democrats do it. And so it is coming a bit late. There are people who are saying, look, this is just something they felt like they had to do to keep up with this. But there's also a notable shift in this administration, both the states and the Biden administration, that they're trying to say, look. We're, you know, remember they used to say we're going to defeat this, uh, you know, COVID. Now they're saying, look, we're going to have to learn to live with it. And so you're going to see a lot of, um, you know, pieces of the administration. You're going to hear the president talk about this, maybe even talk about his big speech next week, that we have to learn to live with COVID. There's certain things that we can go about and do like we used to do. But uh, we're just going to have to be mindful. We're going to have to get vaccinated. We're going to have to do all these things. And we're just going to have to be mindful that it's COVID is out there and it's going to remain out there. So some of it's a shift. Some of it uh, will be perceived as just caving to sort of where we are two years in and where fellow Democrats are. 
Mary, as we've seen, where we are kind of depends on where you live in the country, depending on how tight or loose restrictions are. Moving forward, as everyone says, we're learning to live with this. Does how the pandemic is impacting you kind of depend on where you live? Well, where you live and also who you are, right? Like, a lot of us have immunocompromised people in our families. I do, for instance. And I feel like those people are feeling like, what about us, right? Like, did any of the things, forget masking, like, okay, masking, but do we have better ventilation standards? Do we have widespread availability of coronavirus tests? Like, yes, I got my two tests in the mail, but like, if we had another surge the way we did in December, would we be able to address it? You know, do we have all these things, paid sick leave, that would make us better protected in case of a new surge and in case of another kind of pandemic? And I'm not sure we've gotten all the way there. And so it's not just where you live, it's who you live with. And frankly, in terms of who's vulnerable to COVID, it's older people too. And so it's not just people who are on certain drugs or going through certain treatments. It's really like you in the future who will also be at risk from COVID and other pathogens. So I think that's that's the part that I'm sort of wrestling with right now of like lots of people want to say I'm done with COVID. I know that I have a big pile of masks that I would love to set on fire, but <laughs> you know, can we do that yet? And have we done the things that actually make that possible? And I'm not sure. I'm just imagining a giant pile of masks on fire. And I think a lot of people out there can relate to that. Obviously, a, a lot to watch as the C CDC changes and updates their guidance. A lot to watch today and all of this week. So my thanks to both of you, uh, Anita Kumar, Senior Editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico, and Mary Harris, host of Slate's Daily News podcast, What Next, for joining us today and walking through all of it. Thank you. Remember, we are on Instagram. You can follow us at The 1A Show. 1A's audio engineer and sound designer is Mike Kidd. He gets technical assistance from Adrian Danhauser. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand. Chris Castano is our digital editor. You're listening to the News Roundup. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. This is 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Jo knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Amna Nawaz, in for Jen White. It's time for the global edition of the News Roundup. This time last week, we were talking about the possibility of war in Europe. Now, Russian troops are in Ukraine's capital and demanding the country's, quote, complete demilitarization. Early on Thursday morning in Moscow, Russia's president explained his reasons for shattering a peace that had held for decades. The People's Republic of Donbass asked Russia for help. In this regard, under Article 51, Part 7 of the Charter of the United Nations, I decided to conduct a special military operation. It aims to protect people who have been bullied and subjected to genocide by the Kiev regime for eight years. 
For that, we will strive to demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine and will bring to justice those who committed multiple bloody crimes against civilians, including Russian citizens. And that is where we start the roundup this week. And there's a good chance that's where we'll end it, too. We have a great panel to help guide us through all of these fast-paced events. Our guests today are Dave Lawler, World News Editor for Axios. Dave, great to have you back. Great to be with you. Vivian Salama covers national security for The Wall Street Journal and was recently in the Ukrainian capital. Vivian, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And David Rennie is with us, Beijing bureau chief for The Economist. David, thanks for being here. Hello. So, David, let's start with you. On the cover of your magazine this week, there's a question that a lot of people are asking. Where will Putin stop? Are we clear about what he wants now, now that he's moved troops into Ukraine, a country of 44 million people? One reason why we're not clear about what Vladimir Putin wants is that although he has been giving increasingly bloodthirsty and detailed speeches all week, uh, including most recently uh, some comments calling on the Ukrainian army to essentially sort of overthrow their own government, his vision of why Ukraine poses, in his words, an existential life and death threat to Russia, that he's trying to save Russia's existence itself from the threat of a Ukraine that is run by neo-Nazis that might want to get nuclear weapons. It's a fantasy. If you look at it with real eyes from the outside, objectively, what Vladimir Putin is explaining does not make sense. It's it's a fantasy uh, sort of idea that he is waging a war of self-defense against the Ukraine that is about to destroy Russia. So as a starting point, we have a tremendous amount of information from Vladimir Putin, but none of it actually touches on reality. So then we're forced to guess what is he actually up to. And I think, unfortunately, you know, when you saw all of the intelligence estimates about whether he wants a limited strike to try and take full control of the Russian separatist areas in eastern Ukraine or whether he might be going for, you, for the capital Kiev, as far as we can tell right now as we're on air, he is going, his Russian forces are going for the capital Kiev and potentially to try and decapitate the current elected Ukrainian government and impose presumably some sort of puppet government. So this is close to the worst case scenario for what Vladimir Putin had in mind. Well, we've already seen President Biden and other Western leaders respond with sanctions on Thursday. President Biden laid out what further sanctions the U.S. and Europe would be imposing on Russia. And in these remarks, the president made it clear that Putin is a threat to all those who value democracy. This aggression cannot go unanswered. America stands up to bullies. We stand up for freedom. This is who we are. Well, Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke yesterday about the situation in Ukraine during a meeting of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Vivian, you were probably watching this. He said, quote, all evidence suggests that Russia intends to encircle and threaten Kyiv. So what does Russia's military strategy indicate to you about plans to overtake the Ukrainian government? Well, they're pretty extraordinary and they're very ambitious. Um, even as recently as two, three weeks ago, despite warnings from Washington and its uh, European allies that this was part of the playbook that President Putin had in mind, um, a lot of observers and people I was speaking to, diplomats and other officials in Kyiv, just did not believe that he would go that far, that he would maybe test the waters, try to take portions of the east, um, which have been um, uh, seeing extensive unrest for the last eight years, perhaps some of the port cities on the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov. But to go 
to the extent that he would take Kiev, and especially after eight years of Western allies supplying and training and funding the Ukrainian military, um, it, it just was seen as as as, a, as going uh, a bit too far. But it does, uh, like David was saying, appear that he is going that route. And essentially, this underscores what uh, Vladimir Putin has believed all along, and that is that Ukraine is um, rightfully part of Russia in his view, and it should return to that orbit since um, it, it broke off and became independent in the, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, he has just believed that this was um, a, an illegitimate country neighboring his to the to the to the West. And so that is part of the playbook there. But also, you know, one of the issues that we've seen all along, even with Vladimir Putin's rhetoric in recent weeks about, you know, how he's open to dialogue and wanting to find some sort of uh, negotiated settlement to this problem. It, all along, U.S. officials were telling us it's not like he changed his view suddenly and decided, OK, Ukraine uh, deserves its its uh, independence and self-determination. He, he hasn't. And for Vladimir Putin, A, he believes that Ukraine is part of Russia's orbit, and B, this is an essential part of his legacy. And for that legacy to sort of be whole, as he views it, um, taking the capital is, is a major part of that. And so we're seeing that play out at this point. So Dave Lawler, let's talk about that then. Let's play this out. If Kiev, is it if or a when? If, if Ukraine's capital falls, what else could Putin want? And, and will he get it? Uh, so if the capital falls, obviously, uh, the next phase for Putin would be uh, installing some form of governance that he can live with, probably a, a puppet regime of some sort. Uh, the question is, what will the resistance to that look like? Um, you know, the Ukrainians are certainly indicating that they have the will uh, to fight uh, and potentially fight beyond the fall of the government, and actually, the the there is some consideration going on now in Washington and other Western capitals about how we help uh, a resistance inside of Ukraine if the government does indeed fall. And and there is a question. I was talking to a colleague in Russia and saying, well, of course, Putin would have planned for an insurgency. Um, you know, he he would have known this was part of the equation here. And the, you know, they said to me something that was pretty jarring that they worry Putin might actually believe his own rhetoric to the extent that, you know, this is an illegitimate Western installed government that's, you know, uh, running a country that's actually much more friendly to, to Russia. And so maybe he doesn't think the population will rise up uh, against him, even though there is every indication that it would. So uh, the steps beyond the government falling uh, are certainly um, not clear, but given that the troops have now entered uh, the northern suburbs of Kiev, uh, it, it is a question that we need to be thinking about on a pretty urgent basis, or at least the governments need, uh, around the world need to be thinking about on a pretty urgent basis, because it does appear as though uh, the fight is continuing around the country, but the battle uh, in and around Kiev uh, does seem to be right now going in favor of the advancing Russian troops. Well, as we speak, Ukraine remains a country with a democratically elected leader. President Zelensky has made many appeals for his countrymen and women to fight back. After midnight on Thursday, he made this appeal in Russian to make sure that the Russian people know what is being done in their name. I know that this is not being shown on your TV channels, but this evil, this desire to eliminate a nation is impossible to block. Therefore, dear citizens of Ukraine, 
anyone who has relatives in Russia, I'm sure you do, those who have friends who, are, who know journalists, bloggers in Russia, please appeal to them. They must always talk about this. Then Russia will know the truth. David Rennie, there's clearly an information battle underway here as well. Does either side have the upper hand in that? Well, there's an information battle which each country is waging domestically. So President Zelensky, who came out of the world of kind of entertainment and show business, he was not a professional politician. He, I think, you, you can see reporting that he is now, actually there is a rally around the flag effect and, and having struggled with some of the kind of the weeks of running up to this water to present himself as a kind of credible leader, there's actually something rather moving about some of his very, very direct uh, statements on television. Uh, he's now appearing in these kind of green military T-shirts, uh, looking absolutely shattered, said to some European leaders, uh, this may be the last time you see me alive. And it, and it doesn't feel like sort of showbiz rhetoric. So domestically, President Zelensky seems to have uh, really struck a chord and to be able to sort of uh, rally the people, although, you know, there are limits to what you can do when, you know, we the latest report is they're handing out uh, rifles to civilians in Kiev and giving them uh, instructions on how to make Molotov cocktail petrol bombs on sort of television. So it's a fairly desperate situation. Vladimir Putin, interestingly, has more problem with his own domestic messaging inside Russia. We've seen some unexpectedly, uh, I mean, incredibly brave protests, given that people are dragged away by the Russian riot police protesting this war. Um, he's putting out these incredibly fierce statements, which are clearly for uh, Ukrainian consumption as well, which really bode very ill, I think, for what he plans. And when you see that uh, tonight he addressed Ukrainian armed forces directly and said, take power into your own hands, it looks like you and us will find it easier to reach an agreement with that than with that gang of drug addicts and neo-Nazis in Kiev. I mean, that does not sound like a man who is planning to, uh, to, to come to a peaceful negotiation with the current government in uh, Ukraine. Let's take a moment now to catch up on how the world is responding to Russia's decision to invade Ukraine. President Biden announced new sanctions on Thursday. Putin is the aggressor. Putin chose this war. And now he and his country will bear the consequences. Today, I'm authorizing additional strong sanctions and new limitations on what can be exported to Russia. This is going to impose severe costs on the Russian economy, both immediately and over time. In a statement on Wednesday, D.C. time, Biden called Russians' actions, quote, unprovoked and unjustified. So, David Rennie, walk us through what those new sanctions encompass and what kind of impact they could have on Russia. So there's the sort of banking sanctions and the and the idea of excluding Russian banks from the, the U.S. dollar financial system, which are extremely powerful, but fairly familiar. So listeners will remember, you know, that was the kind of thing that America and its allies did uh, in 2014 after Russia uh, annexed uh, Crimea in the south of Ukraine. And it's a very powerful tool. One of the things that is really interesting about what uh, Joe Biden announced this week is that some of the sanctions uh, that he was talking about, the, sort of the high-tech exports to Russia, those are really new. And they're actually taking as a model some of the sanctions that uh, the Trump administration placed on high-tech Chinese companies like Huawei, the big telecoms company, where basically the argument is that any product or component, things like microchips or semiconductors, that is made by any company anywhere in the world that uses American technology, maybe because it uses software in the high-tech production process, America has to grant a license for any company in the world to sell those to Russia now. And so in the spheres that they're particularly targeting, which is things like uh, aerospace, shipbuilding, uh, and the defense industry in Russia, 
and you know big data centers using Russian computers, it is going to become increasingly difficult for them to get spare parts, for them to uh, get semiconductors, even if they're made in a country nowhere near this conflict. And actually that, which we've never seen before, uses a tool, that choking off of a very large part of the highest tech imports that Russia needs to keep its economy going, could turn out over time to be a really, really serious development in, in the world of sanctions, which opens up that whole question about, you know, are sanctions any good? Do they ever change people's minds? And I think it's clear that sanctions are double-edged. They also hurt Western economies because they're going to pay a price, you know, if we sanction things like energy and oil prices and gasoline prices are going to skyrocket. But I think the, the, the question you have to ask people who say, well, why should we try sanctions at all is, given that we're not going to send American or NATO troops into Ukraine to fight alongside the Ukrainians, if we don't do sanctions, then what else do we do? We just Do we just say that it's okay for Russia to invade Ukraine? So I think we should give them a bit of time to prove that these new, particularly these new technological sanctions allied to these very severe banking sanctions are at least a way to show extraordinary disapproval of what Russia is doing to try and make them pay a really serious cost. Well, Vivian, here's the question we heard a lot about sanctions, right? That the threat of sanctions uh, were meant to be a deterrent and then the rolling out are, are sort of framed as a punishment for, for Putin's actions. But there's still been a lot of criticism of the Biden administration and others that the sanctions don't go far enough. Why? What is that based on? Well, there are a number of actors, both critics of the president, but also um, some countries in um in Europe that believe that we should be removing Russia from the SWIFT financial system, that that would be um, far more detrimental to their economy than anything that the Biden administration has done so far. Some people also calling for sanctions on Putin directly, which President Biden has said that he is open to. Um, And so a number of uh, sort of extreme measures that uh, folks here were hoping for, a lot of the president's critics, even some of his allies, as well as some some people in Europe, that just didn't happen. And what the administration is saying, the way they're defending themselves is, A, um, sanctions on uh, removing Russia from SWIFT um, would have a spillover effect that would really hurt the economies of a number of countries in Europe. And that has been the position of um, the EU at large, is that uh, removing them from SWIFT would just have Uh, would just reverberate across the continent. And so that's one issue. The second issue is sanctioning Putin, where there's a lot of deliberation about whether that's a bad precedent. Sanctioning a world leader, um, does it hurt the chances for future negotiation and diplomacy um, in peacetime? Uh, Does it, um, you know... uh, risk any issues with immunity. Um, and those are the issues that are being discussed now, but still on the table. And so this is what the administration has been saying all along, is that while they've sort of cast um, SWIFT as being just not a not an option at this time, they do still talk about sanctioning Putin. They do still talk about sanctioning more people within his inner circle, family members. Um, and they keep on saying that as long as we see um, uh, no de-escalation, then we will continue continue to impose sanctions. And that's been the approach right now. Well, Dave Lawler, as uh, people are considering how the world could respond, we're getting a number of listener questions. Uh, I'll put a couple to you here. Nigel is asking, quote, if NATO offered Ukraine admission into its club, would that make Russia retreat? Ken is thinking something along the same lines. He writes, what would happen if NATO members held an emergency meeting with the Ukrainian government and declared Ukraine a NATO member? Would that throw a monkey wrench into this invasion? Dave, what do you say to that? 
uh, it would basically also require, and it is a it, it is a good question, and and you know people who are uh, trying to think about ways beyond sanctions to to put pressure on Putin. You know, obviously uh, NATO is a big card that's out there, but if the NATO members were to bring uh, Ukraine into the alliance, they would uh, virtually be immediately declaring war uh, on Russia because Ukraine, you know, there's a, there's a mutual defense pact where if a NATO member comes under attack, the rest of the alliance is bound to defend them. And so uh, you would have, you know, NATO members then bound to defend Ukraine and, and you would have potentially or almost certainly U.S. troops uh, flying off to, to Ukraine uh, to fight this war. So, uh, you know, that is a step that is very unlikely to be taken uh, while this war is unfolding. Well, we mentioned after Russia's invasion of Ukraine that oil leapt to $105 a barrel on Thursday. It was for the first time since 2014. Uh, Dave Lawler, just very basically, why are those prices rising? Yeah, so part of it right now is is concern that supply is going to be uh, restricted. Russia is a massive uh, supplier of oil around the world. Um, President Biden has tried to make clear that these sanctions that he's putting on Russia are not targeting Russia's oil and gas, which again is the lifeblood of the Russian uh, economy. So if we're talking about issues with trying to put sanctions on Russia, if you're not going after oil and gas, that's certainly a, a pretty big hole in the sanctions regime. Uh, but but um, Russian gas also flows to Europe through Ukrainian pipelines. Uh, that's, you know, if you have a war going on between Russia and Ukraine, that's another uh, obvious uh, concern there for for oil markets. So so I think President Biden has been trying to prepare Americans for the idea that because of this war they're going to pay a little bit more or potentially significantly more uh, at the pump, and that's basically due to Russia's huge role in the global energy markets. So Vivian, President Biden has been warning Americans about that. Still here at home, he's fighting record inflation. He's fighting a pandemic, fallout from the withdrawal of Afghanistan, now a war in Ukraine. What could the next few weeks mean for his presidency? Well, it depends on how much um, he has the bandwidth to address these very pressing domestic issues. Um, I did a story on Amina last month um, kind of um, taking stock of the president's first year in office and uh, with regard to his foreign policy specifically. And I talked about how domestic issues have really made it so challenging for him to um, go about achieving some of his major foreign policy goals, namely the, the top among them, uh, uh, his efforts to... Um, his efforts to go after China and to compete with China and to suppress China's influence uh, overseas. And so the issue now remains, is he going to be able to address the issues that um, that really uh, matter to voters? You mentioned inflation, you know, rising gas prices, rising food prices. These are the issues that really matter to voters. And so he knows that. But at the same time, you know, first of all, he always touted himself to be a foreign policy expert. He was obviously the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee in Congress for a very long time in the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee. And so he he has a lot of experience. He's very passionate about these issues. Afghanistan and Ukraine are two issues that he's very particularly passionate about. And he really wanted to achieve some sort of a solution. But what's happened is that the shaky, somewhat shaky response to um, to some of these foreign policy crises, of course, the chaotic and very disastrous 
withdrawal from Afghanistan last year, um, has really questioned whether his administration has that bandwidth, has the ability to go head on and, and really show their years of experience, to show that they're able to um, get a grip on, on some of these global crises when, with everything else happening at home. And so that continues to be an issue. Whether or not it impacts them, you know, we're going into the midterm season, obviously, whether or not it impacts them there, you know, everything that we see shows that American voters at this point um, have a lot on their plate, almost literally, uh, with regard to domestic challenges. And so um, if, as long as they, they seem to be doing a good job on foreign policy, that, that, that usually will guide them through and be okay. David Rennie, I'll put to you this question that's come in from Carl, who's asking about oil prices and Russia's role. And Carl asks, isn't it time for an oil and gas embargo against Russia? We should have been making plans to secure emergency fuel supplies for this event. If Russia cannot sell its oil and gas, they're done. What would you say to Carl? Look, it's it's clearly it's an argument that would get Russia's attention. But the problem is, it depends how much Carl and other listeners are willing to pay for gasoline uh, at the at the petrol station, right? Because one of the reasons uh, that uh, petrol prices, uh, gas prices are so high is because there are other sanctions being imposed on other countries. You know, it is a very handy weapon to use. But one of the reasons that world gas prices are high is because Iran currently uh, has, you know, very severe constraints on the amount of oil that it can sell into the global market. One of the reasons that uh, the US actually last year imported record volumes of oil from Russia was because there are other American sanctions against Venezuela. And Venezuela, despite being very hostile to the United States, used to be a gigantic supplier of crude oil. All those Gulf Coast uh, refineries down in places like Louisiana they, they're built to make to, to use Venezuelan oil and turn it into, into gas for American drivers. So if you're going to sanction Venezuela for perfectly sound reasons, Iran for perfectly sound reasons, and now Russia for perfectly sound reasons, pretty soon there isn't going to be enough oil to come around. The other thing is that America now has some competition in terms of being the world's most important energy market. I'm sitting here in Beijing, and one of the things that has changed geopolitics enormously, including in this crisis is that China's vast market and sort of limitless demand for oil and gas has reduced the West's leverage, literally to the point that, you know, we're very interested in the fact that the German government uh, has suspended a controversial pipeline that America really didn't like that was going to increase uh, Europe's dependency on Russian gas, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is now suspended. But the political impact of that is clearly going to be muted by the fact that the Chinese are offering to buy enormous amounts of gas in some cases, from the same Russian gas field. So it can now go east and west, giving Moscow more options. So America is living in a world where it has uh, an enormous number of countries that it wants to try and exert leverage on, but that is going to hurt American voters. And Joe Biden doesn't want to do that in the midterms. And also, there are new players who are equally powerful in terms of their leverage, like the country I'm in, China. Well, we should talk more about one remarkable split-screen moment earlier this week that was on Wednesday at the United Nations. At the very time the Security Council was meeting in an effort to pull Russia back from the brink, Putin was making his case for war on state TV. Now, bear in mind it was Russia's ambassador who was in charge of this meeting. And as the news broke that Putin had made his move, Ukraine's ambassador to the UN didn't pretend to hide his feelings. Relinquish your duties as a chair call Putin to stop aggression. There is no purgatory for war criminals. They go straight to hell, Ambassador. 
Dave Lawler, talk to me about what you thought when this moment unfolded, and, and why did diplomacy just fail? So I was watching this this UN Security Council meeting, which was held in an emergency session, basically in hopes of avoiding a war that very early in this meeting I had to flip over because President Putin was declaring war uh, in real time. And so you had this kind of farcical situation where a number of diplomats uh, were getting their chance to speak and saying that there was still time to, you know, choose peace and that we need to, you know, uh, give diplomacy every chance to work. And uh, there are explosions happening in, in Kiev because Vladimir Putin has declared war. And so it was it was not a proud moment for the U.N., Security Council, as you mentioned, the meeting was chaired by the Russian ambassador to the United Nations. And so he was giving everybody their chance to speak, you know, being very diplomatic. And then it was his chance to speak. And he said some of the same things you've heard from Vladimir Putin about this idea that there's a genocide happening in eastern Ukraine. There is not a genocide happening uh, in eastern Ukraine, but it's one of the Russian talking points. And so uh, obviously, the Ukrainian representative uh, was not willing to to accept uh, that rhetoric, was not willing to to sort of go along with what was increasingly looking like a charade. And so, uh, yeah, he said that there was, uh, you know, no purgatory for war criminals. Uh, you'll go straight to hell to his Russian counterpart, uh, who in turn said that there was no aggression against Ukrainians. It was just against the junta in power. And then he gaveled the meeting to a close. So it was a very bizarre meeting at the UN Security Council uh, and probably not one of the prouder moments for that institution. And Vivian, before before we go here, I, I should ask you about another piece of this, which is the protests we've been seeing in Russia, right? The Associated Press says more than 1,700 people in over 50 Russian cities have been detained. What more do we know about some of the concerns that Russians have about this attack on their neighbor? I can tell you just from my own conversations with people um, in Russia that um, they they believe it's disturbing. And remember that now Russia Russian uh, residents have uh, access to information that maybe they didn't have eight, nine, ten years ago, where the internet and VP, uh, VPNs are allowing people to access information um, uh, apart from the state line. And so uh, people are getting angry. They see this as an unnecessary aggression. They see the Ukrainians as their brothers and sisters. And it's starting to show in the streets. But of course, you have a very oppressive regime in Moscow that does not allow protests. And so um, they're being cracked down pretty quickly. Um, but just the fact that um, that that we see those protesters taking to the streets is indication that people are getting um, alternate information from what the state is trying to feed them, and they are not happy with their government right now. David Rennie, I would love to ask you about the view from China when it comes to this conflict in Ukraine. How much coverage has there been there, and, and what are Chinese officials saying about it all? It's been very, very... Uh it's an extraordinary kind of time because China traditionally has been a very cautious foreign policy actor and it likes to play the kind of moral high ground. It likes to talk about uh, respecting uh, territorial integrity and sovereignty of all countries, that it's a, a peace-loving giant that doesn't like to get involved in conflicts. And it's still pushing a bit of that language. And we saw, for example, Xi Jinping, uh, the Chinese leader, had a call with Vladimir Putin uh, tonight, uh, Chinese time, and said sort of supposedly nice things about calling on everyone to abandon Cold War mentalities and to take into account and respect the legitimate concerns of countries uh, and to have negotiations to form a a balanced, effective and sustainable mechanism for European security. So that all sounds like a responsible big country saying kind of neutral, sensible things. And that's the Chinese kind of pitch. But they're playing a double game because at exactly the same time, we have had blood curdling anti-American rhetoric 
not just from kind of state media, but also from the podium of the Chinese foreign ministry here in Beijing, their chief spokesperson blaming America for the war in Ukraine, saying that America is the chief culprit that has poured oil on the flames uh, and saying that the cause of this war is that by expanding NATO uh, five times since the end of the Soviet Union up to Russia's borders, that America didn't ask why what, what happens when you drive a big country to the wall. And so absolutely repeating the Russian talking points. And that's a big departure because, you know, China has geopolitical uh, interest in Russia and it wants to buy Russian oil and gas and Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping share a very kind of autocratic worldview and certainly deep hostility to America. But America remains uh, in economic terms infinitely more important uh, to China than Russia. And so it's really surprising to everyone here to see the extent to which the veneer of neutrality is very, very thin and it's covering a deep, angry anti-American kind of paranoia. And I'm afraid that on Chinese social media, although it's a kind of cesspool out there because it's so censored and there's all these paid sort of trolls out there, so we don't really know, but it's clear that a very, very large number of ordinary Chinese are totally on Russia's side and are very excited and happy to see America uh, being made, as they see it, to be humiliated by this magnificently strong Russian standing up against the bullying West. Vivian, there's another piece of this when it comes to how the conflict is being talked about, specifically from the Russian side, and some allegations that there's a lot of chauvinism in how people are talking about this. We know Russian's foreign minister was on the record saying Russia does not change its position, quote, like a girl. We also heard on 1A this week that Russians have castigated Ukraine as a, quote, prostitute who sold out to the West. Is that something you've noticed, this element of chauvinism in all of this? Yeah, I I did. I mean, I I assume that it's it's largely part of the rhetoric, and especially in times of war, where um, you know, in certain cultures, there's this uh, way of demeaning your uh, your adversaries um, as being weak, and then some sometimes weakness is equated to being female. Of course, I'm not. You and I know that's not true. Of course, we but- do. <laughs> but um you know I, it is it is something that uh, and it's not just exclusive to uh to Russia I mean I I've been a foreign correspondent for a really long time and I've heard similar rhetoric uh spoken uh, around the world but in times of war especially um you you tend to hear um any kind of language demeaning your adversaries and saying that they fight like a girl which used to be an expression you know here in the United States as well um that 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 is usually deemed as some uh, a put down in some ways yeah so Dave Lawler, um, let's talk about what President Biden is doing. We know he met with G7 leaders on Thursday. Uh, let's talk about the U.S. place on the world stage. What does all of this mean for the space that America occupies in the future? Yeah, I mean, I, I was interested that there hasn't really been any major political actor uh, trying to make a case that the U.S. should be militarily involved in this war. I think that's a sign that uh you know, things have shifted in terms of U.S. political discourse. This idea that if something that we don't like is happening around the world, we we you know we need to uh, use every tool up to up to and including military measures to to um, uh, respond to it uh, has always been you know or at least as far as I can remember, there has been a strain of U.S. political thinking that would adopt that view. It hasn't been been very prominent 
here, and, and perhaps it shouldn't be. I mean, that there's a risk of nuclear war if the U.S. and Russia uh, face off, so fair enough. But uh, I think that uh, also, you know, as, as David mentioned, people around the world uh, do view this conflict between two nation states, neither of which is the United States, in a context of Russia against the West. That's very much how Vladimir Putin uh, has characterized this. And so, you know, if Putin is marching into Kyiv, uh, it is a blow to the West. Biden himself has said it's a blow to everything that, that uh, Western democracies stand for, uh, which is part of why this has been, uh, you know, su such a kind of evocative uh, thing to watch from here. Basically, you do have a democratically elected government that has chosen to align itself with the West uh, now, uh, you know, in a civil war facing pretty tremendous odds against uh, invading Russian troops. And so, you know, what does this mean for America's role on the world stage? Well, I think it will mean that, uh, you know, countries would like to be in NATO, that's for sure, because if you're in NATO, we'll say we'll defend you. Uh, what does it mean for, you know, someplace like Taiwan? David Rennie probably knows better than me how concerned they might be about the idea that, uh, you know, a big country is moving into a smaller neighbor. But, um, you know, th there will certainly be... Uh, when there is, you know, sort of a treatise written on this era in international relations, uh, the U.S. relative uh, inability to impact Putin's behavior here is certainly something that will be looked at. You're working on that treatise as we speak, correct? Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, when it comes to NATO, of course, the last few weeks have led to a lot of questions about why NATO didn't invite Ukraine to join the alliance. Ukraine's president made it very clear that's what he wanted in order to help prevent further invasion. Here actually is NATO's secretary general responding to those concerns last year in an interview with Axios. To be a NATO member, you need to meet the NATO standards. We help them with, with modernizing, fighting corruption. But uh, 30 allies have to agree, and we don't have a consensus uh, agreement in NATO now on inviting uh, Ukraine into uh, becoming a full member. David Rennie, we hear this question a lot. If, if Turkey is still a member of NATO, why, why is Ukraine's application to join seen as a problem? Well, I think if Turkey were applying to join from scratch now, it wouldn't be getting in. I mean, that's a Cold War legacy. I think what's really important to remember about NATO, and it's certainly not at all understood or accepted here in China, uh, is NATO isn't uh, a magic force field. You know, it's not that America invites countries to come into the magic force field that is NATO and then they are safe. NATO is a promise uh, as Dave said, it's Article 5, that the core of NATO is a promise that an attack on one bit of NATO will be treated by the other members as an attack on their own territory. That's all it is. And that's a gigantic promise. But the thing about that promise is that if you extend that promise to a country, but you don't really mean it, and it then turns out that there's an attack on that new member and you didn't really mean it when you said that you would treat an attack on them as an attack on yourself and you would come to their rescue... If NATO ever fails to work, if the promise fails to be kept, then NATO doesn't exist anymore. It just disappears in a kind of puff of smoke because it is about trust and confidence. And that's what's so dangerous about this situation that, uh, for one thing, Ukraine, I think you can make a case that it was a big mistake when George W. Bush pushed so hard to have a path into NATO for Ukraine because so many other members of NATO in Europe didn't want to extend that promise to Ukraine because they thought it was too risky and they're just too close to Russia. And, and it was an overreach by America. And we're kind of living with that legacy. And the, the horrible irony is that the legacy on the NATO side is that actually no one wants to let Ukraine in for those reasons. It's too risky. And the lie that Vladimir Putin is now peddling 
amplified by allies like China, is that it's because NATO is desperate to let in Ukraine and is about to let in Ukraine that we have to have this supposed war of self-defense. NATO was not about to let in Ukraine. It isn't a threat to Russia. NATO isn't a threat to Russia in any case. But it's, a, it's the best excuse that Vladimir Putin has. I've been seeing it amplified by China, by Syria, by Myanmar. You know, the world's rogues are lining in on this argument. But it's a total misrepresentation of what NATO is. While Ukraine and Russia are making major headlines this week, there's a story that's still making waves, the coronavirus pandemic. Dave Lawler, the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, asked for a break in COVID-19 vaccine donations. That seems like an odd request at a time like this. Why did they make that request? Yeah, we're entering kind of a new phase of the pandemic in developing countries, especially in Africa. They've been pleading with the international community uh, for doses for however long this pandemic has been going on now. Uh, Now the supply is coming in. So a lot of these countries actually have as many or more doses than they can efficiently roll out before they expire. And so part of this request is don't just send us everything now space these out so that we get them at a pace when we're actually able to roll them out and actually help us with rolling out these doses. Because I spoke to um, Seth Berkeley, who's basically the point man on the COVAX initiative a few weeks ago. This is the International Vaccine Sharing Initiative. And he said that when they do their assessments, uh, there are around 20 to 25 countries that they see that are just not able to use the doses efficiently uh, because they don't have the healthcare workers to give them out, because they don't have the infrastructure, because they don't have the cold storage, whatever the case may be. And so one of the things that's going to need to happen if we're going to hit these global benchmarks of, say, 70% vaccination around the world is we're going to need a really concerted effort to get those capabilities into countries uh, that are having trouble. Uh, And I should just say, this is not an exoneration of the failure to send vaccines to Africa earlier in the pandemic. It doesn't mean that they wouldn't have been able to use them if they weren't send them, sent them earlier. Uh, it's just that the supply picture has changed now and they're adjusting accordingly. Well, Vivian, we've seen a loosening of restrictions in a number of countries now. Uh, Australia just reopened their borders for the first time in nearly two years. They had some of the strictest travel bans in the world. What does that signal to you about the state of the pandemic? Uh, you said it with Australia. They they were known throughout the pandemic as Fortress Australia or the Hermit Kingdom uh, at some points just because of how extensive their uh, their restrictions were. And so they reopened to international travel on Monday, um, almost two years after the country closed its borders. The prime minister in a press conference um, said that uh, the world is already visaed up and ready to visit. And so um, the, the, one one of the issues with with Australia's uh, uh, um, efforts was that there was extensive quarantines, and it was making it uh, making it a very very difficult situation um, for a lot of the residents who had to come and go and had to spend sometimes two weeks in quarantine. Um, and so it, it it was something that was seen as um, in some ways exhausting for a lot of residents, but also in some ways of the way that they were able to come through with this. And so. They were really praised in the beginning for for, for um, approaching this with stricter measures because they were trying to contain uh, the virus from spreading. But of course, um, we've seen ups and downs on that. We also saw a lot of drama around the uh, tennis tournament last month because of uh, their restrictions. Uh, and so, you know, it's it, it's something that's been ongoing. Now, there is one exception 
to Australia's uh, to Australia's lifting of the regulations, and that's in Western Australia, which is the largest state by land, and it continues to require travelers to quarantine for seven days um, until a plan change of about March 3rd. But for now, they do believe that they are coming out of this, that they've managed to uh, get a grip on the spread of the virus, and uh, and it's, it's looking like good news for the Australians. David Rennie, briefly before we go, COVID isn't the only international health news. We should note that Colombia is the latest Latin American country to decriminalize abortion. That nation follows Argentina and Mexico in the policy trend. So, David, what does that signal to you about the way abortion is now viewed in Latin America? It's very interesting. This is very, obviously, there are a lot of uh, very devout Catholics in Latin America that had been, made it very difficult to get an abortion. Um, what's interesting about Colombia, I think if you're from America, where obviously your abortion law rests on the, 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 the Supreme Court, it was a similar deal in Colombia, that the activists went to the constitutional court and they basically argued that uh, there are some carve-outs for things like the life of the mother and uh, an abortion in the case of rape. And they were saying that basically only rich women uh, in big cities had the sort of the, the skills and the funds and the know-how to, to use that legal carve-out and that poorer women, rural women and young women were not able to get those abortions even if they were legally entitled to them. And that was unconstitutional. The court has agreed with them. And so now abortion is legal up to 24 weeks in Colombia, though there are many Colombians very opposed to abortion. But the idea that it should be constitutional and, and fair does have kind of majority support. So you saw polls saying that even in this very, very conservative country, that 82% of Colombians do support abortion in some cases. And so it's the third country, as you say, in Latin America uh, to change its law on this. And that is a remarkable development. And it's basically been years and years of, of activism by lawyers and feminist activists across the continent. A busy, busy week on the world stage. My thanks to all of you for joining us to help everybody walk through it. That was David Rennie, Beijing bureau chief for The Economist, Dave Lawler, world news editor for Axios, and Vivian Salama, foreign policy reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you so much to each of you for joining us. 1A's managing editor is Paige Osborne. Jonkelin Hill is our senior producer. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. And Barb Angiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Amna Nawaz of the PBS NewsHour. Jen White is back on Monday. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks for listening. This is 1A.